Epilogues, Creative Sadism, and Old Christine. Never a dull day on Dear Writer. December 8, 2021. The inspiration, becoming. For me, becoming isn't about arriving somewhere or achieving a certain aim. I see it instead as forward motion, a means of evolving, a way to reach continuously toward a better self. The journey doesn't end. Michelle Obama. There is a process that leads us out of one space and into another, where you leave behind who you've been and start to become whatever your new self is. Sometimes we rush toward that new beginning. Sometimes we resist. But in the end, we always become the new thing anyway. The Fat Orange Cat, a key. What does it open? A door? A cabinet? A bike chain? Does it start a car? Is it decorative like a charm or a necklace? Does it look decorative but is actually functional? Keys, man. They're kind of magic, aren't they? The Trope. Epilogue. An epilogue is the story that comes after the story. Typically, it's showing us the world many years after the events of the story. It's not the resolution scenes, which are essential because they show us how the world has changed, thus giving us the meaning of the story. Epilogues typically travel a bit down the road to show us how happy our characters are and insinuate that they will be happy forever. You know, okay, good for them. But if they're happy, it's not story. Story is about the struggle. Happiness is great and all, but I don't want to see it. I've discovered uses for voiceover, flashbacks, even prologues, but epilogues? I don't get it. I have yet to discover a true narrative value to an epilogue. They don't bug me that much because they're at the end, and when they happen in a story, I just don't read them. I don't care. But maybe I'm missing something. I understand why some people enjoy them. They want to see their beloved characters be happy. But what is the narrative value? I haven't seen an epilogue of actual narrative value yet. Have you? The question, too nice to write? What do you do when you're blocked in your writing, not because you don't know what to write, but because you really, really don't want to write the awful things that need to happen to your characters? I recently had a plot revelation on my short fiction piece, which means the story is now much darker and more sinister, and my two main characters will be ripped apart by the devastating thing that has to happen, and I haven't written anything since. Being a highly sensitive, intuitive, empathetic person, I don't know if I can make my character suffer this much. I know it makes for great stories, but I just can't bring myself to do it. Help. Blocked. <laughs> Dear Blocked. Wow. I feel like this is going to reveal a dark side of my nature, but I have literally never had this problem. I love tormenting my characters. The more, the better. My characters are most interesting to me when they're suffering. Usually my problem is that I don't have a lot of sadism in my nature, so I have trouble imagining enough ways to make them miserable, but once an idea comes to me, I am into it. I think that's because when my characters are in pain, I see it as a release for my own pain. Their trauma is a way to process my own trauma. And that's how fiction works. We walk through the pain with our characters that we are afraid of or incapable of walking through on our own. It's possible that reframing your situation through this lens might help. 
When you put your characters through this torment, which sounds awesome, by the way, you're actually going to be helping your readers work through their own pain. Maybe if your empathy switches focus from your characters to the readers that those characters are going to help by going through this, maybe that'll help? I don't know. I wish I could be more help. I'm literally never more excited to write than when my characters are knee deep in the misery. Everything L. The Practical, way too good to be on CBS. I just finished my second run through The New Adventures of Old Christine, and I have to say, I don't get it. I don't get why this show was on CBS, a network famous for its dedication to mediocrity. CBS has made an art of rounding up any good parts of TV shows, then taking them out back and beating them to death with a shovel. I don't get why old Christine didn't get more attention for being as good as it was. I don't get why it was unceremoniously canceled after the last episode had been shot, so it just ends in the middle of a handful of active storylines, just cut off like Tony Soprano. Footnote. Oh, you're really going to be mad at me for that? The Sopranos was 20 years old. What's the statute of limitations on spoilers anyway? Showrunner Carrie Lizer said publicly that CBS was sexist, and that's why it showed no respect to the show. And I believe her because... Well, I've watched CBS. Here are all the things I like about the new adventures of old Christine. One, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a comic genius. She is also amazing in Veep, but I find that a rougher ride, so it's nice to be able to enjoy her as old Christine and not have to think about the fact that Washington Insider said Veep is practically a documentary, and that was before Trump. Two, Clark Gregg is charming as hell. I don't believe him at all as Richard, the ex-husband walking around amidst a companion cloud of loser because he's just too charming to be believable as a loser. But I don't care because charmed. Three. Hamish Linklater, who did a stunning turn recently in Netflix's Midnight Mass, is so adorable in this show that I had a hard time not finding him hilariously funny in Midnight Mass. It was a problem. Four. Richie, the little kid, is allowed to hover legitimately in the average to dumb area of the intellectual spectrum. I am so tired of precocious kids who are smarter than their parents. He's not, and considering that his parents aren't that bright either, it makes the kid adorable, lovable, and hilarious in a way that kids usually aren't allowed to be on sitcoms. Five, Wanda Sykes is one of the most brilliant comedians of our age, and she is even funnier here. Six, the active acknowledgement of racism, classism, and sexism without being preachy or smug about it. The show's characters often have toilet paper streamers of all three on their shoes at any given time, which allows us to look directly at the realities of our uniquely American brand of toxicity and laugh at it without pretending that it's not that bad. It's absolutely that bad, and this show knows it. The honesty is refreshing. There are a couple of things that I don't enjoy so much. The brother-sister relationship gets textually incestuous in a way that gets really uncomfortable. But overall, it's just a good show, and its total lack of boundaries is definitely part of its charm. Have you watched it? What do you think? It's good, right? Fucking CBS. Everything out. Reject the premise. There is no carrot, y'all. December 11th, 2021. Dear writer, so this was making the rounds on the tweeters last week. And here I have an image uh, screenshot of a tweet thread, and then I go on to explain it. So I'm just going to go on to explain it. Here's a summary. Someone tweeted with their name redacted for their own safety. I remember hearing that John Scalzi will either write for four hours or 1,000 words per day. I don't even think he could be called a full-time writer if he only works half a day or less. 
Someone else responded to that tweet. If writing is all you have to do and you've got an advance and you don't churn out 3,000 words in composition a day, you're not competent enough to be a full-time writer. I have what amounts to three full-time jobs and I write more than he does. To which John Scalzi replied, if it makes these folks feel better to think I'm a part-time writer, fine. In which case, I'm a part-time writer who doesn't have another job. That's actually pretty cool. Also, if typing is all you think qualifies as writing, well, okay, that's a choice you can make. To which Neil Gaiman responded, I wrote Coraline at 50 words a night. I don't know where to start. The ridiculousness of the idea that until you work for 40 hours in a week, your work doesn't have real value. The ableism of the idea that unless you can work for 40 hours in a week, you're not really working. The arrogance of telling a huge bestselling writer that he's not working hard enough. The absolute arbitrariness of the 40-hour work week itself. Or the fact that the actual writing is just part of the job when you're a writer, which also includes promotion and book signings and meetings with editors and agents and answering emails and farting about on social media with people who yell at you for stupid shit, which is required by most publishers. But that's all weeds. We need to move out of these details and see from a higher vantage point. We need to reject the premise, which Scalzi failed to do. Scalzi came back with a response of, I do so work, and he does, and I believe him because I've been very close to some best-selling authors, and they turn themselves inside out, doing a million things that aren't writing the stories, but which make it possible to make money for writing the stories. That's not the point. Scalzi failed to reject the premise of this argument, which is that if he's not working every day until his fingers bleed, then he's not honorable. We've been faltering under the myth of the hard worker for a really long time. It's a capitalist story where the moneyed and the powerful, the MAP, convince the proletariat that they too can have wealth and a life of ease if they just work hard enough for just enough wages to mostly get by, while telling us that the sacrifice of our time, health, and well-being is honorable, and that honor is what you get instead of, you know, Maslowian security. I say Maslowian security instead of financial security because up to a point, money only provides you with the first two levels of Maslow's hierarchy, the basic needs that keep us alive and safe. Financial security, if any of us ever see that, comes after Maslowian security, which in the world's richest countries should be a basic human right. We're batteries being given empty honor badges in return for sacrificing the most finite resource we have, the hours of our lives. For that labor and time investment, we're told that if we manage to put away enough money after we meet our Maslavian needs, which most of us won't be able to do because we barely make Maslavian wages, we can retire and live the good life, which for those of us lucky enough to have anything to save for retirement will be maybe just enough to get by. Or maybe, maybe we will hit it big and live the good life now like Scalzi, but then we'll have our labor source honor taken away from us if we don't show our time card punches to everyone on Twitter. But in the end, all that happens is that we're discarded for the next set of fresh batteries who have to work even harder, not just for the carrot of eventual success slash life of ease, but for the stick of crippling student loan debt, which will destroy them financially if they ever stop moving. Capitalism is a villain that knows what it's doing, y'all. I mean, it's evil as fuck, but you got to give it up for the genius of it all. But let's get back to rejecting the premise. One, you've been sold a line of bullshit about your value and your labor, not your work, your labor. Work is what you do for yourself. It's meaningful and important. Labor is what you do for someone else. Two, when you labor, you are a battery. Sometimes your labor can also be work that is meaningful. Often, it's not. It's just a treadmill with a carrot in front of you and a stick behind you. Three, 
But since your labor makes the MAP money, you've been set up to believe that your value is tied to your productivity. That is so you will continue to labor for them and make them money. How this affects you is not their concern. They tell you your labor is honorable to make you feel better about being a battery. Four, your ability to labor hard is not what gives you value, nor is being pretty or being thin or achieving some other unattainable standard for which someone in the MAP has a class or a pill or a scheme that will fix everything if you just pay them what's left of your money, of which you already don't have enough. Evil genius. Five, people who labor less than X hours a day are not lazy. They just know when they're done. Six, If you don't have enough money, it's not because you're not laboring hard enough or because your labor doesn't have value. It's because the system is designed to keep you on the treadmill, endlessly chasing a carrot you were never meant to get in fear of a stick that will destroy you if you don't move fast enough. So while Scalzi's response is true and correct, he is indeed working his ass off for every bit of success that he has, I reject the premise that this person making the accusations was defensible in their accusations. They said what they said because they've been abused by the system and they in turn abuse others because they failed to reject the premise behind their abuse, which is about what we deserve. We believe the people who have outrageous success deserve that success because they work hard and we forget that they're not working any harder than anyone else. We believe that people who are in poverty deserve it because they're not working hard enough, even though people in poverty are working harder for lower wages and more volatile jobs than people not in poverty. I mean, shit, one of the tweeters is speaking about having the equivalent of three full-time jobs, 120 hours of the 168 available hours in the week, and writing more than 1K words a day as though it is a badge of honor and not a red flag of abuse. So it's time to reject the premise. We need to stop feeling bad about ourselves and slapping each other because the MAP fed us myths that hurt us and benefited them. Neil Gaiman is taking the right approach. He says he wrote 50 words a night in Coraline and he doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't make excuses and say, oh, but I also spent 12 hours a day doing all this other nonsense to keep my face in front of you all and remind you that I'm here and I've hustled for everything I've gotten. That is likely also true. Gaiman fucking hustles. He deserves his success, absolutely, but no more than other people deserve that level of success who haven't hit the lottery that is right place, right work, right time. Hard work and success do go together, but correlation is not causation. Some people have success because the system is set up to hugely reward a few people to serve as the carrot that the rest of us chase so that we will continue to exhaust ourselves, turning our time into a lot of money for someone else and just a little less than enough for us. The good news is more batteries are starting to realize what's going on and attempts are being made at disrupting the system. The bad news is people like this will continue to yell at the various John Scalzi, mad because they're still on the treadmill, chasing a carrot they will never ever get and holding up their useless honor badges as though that means anything. Look, we're still in the system and we still have to work in it until we fix it because our Maslavian needs still have to be met. But at least we can reject the premise and stop beating each other up for not laboring hard enough. That's a start. Everything else.